Let's turn in our Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 45. And we can stand and honor the reading of the Word of God. And I would like to say that it is always a privilege uh, to be asked to preach anywhere. And especially, and there are certain churches that you just uh, enjoy preaching at. I enjoy preaching here. I appreciate uh, the way you receive it. Good spirit around here. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the food, the fellowship. Uh, appreciate Brother John letting me use his guitar. Appreciate Dr. Clark adjusting me. And uh, now it's my turn to adjust him. Amen. Well, actually, I can't do, I can't do the adjusting. Uh, the Holy Spirit will have to do the adjusting. Now, if you hear any crunching and cracking, that's not my fault. Amen. Uh, no, but I do appreciate all of that. I appreciate the good food and the fellowship. And I have been refreshed myself. And my wife loves to come. And we've had a wonderful time. And uh, folks back home have watched. And uh, I appreciate that. And they are praying. And I can tell that you have prayed. And I thank you for the privilege to get to come here, and I've enjoyed myself. And I want to help you tonight in an area that I think uh, we all deal with. And uh, you know we have an adversary. You are aware of this. And many times we think that uh, you have to be on the mission field to be in the battle, but you really don't. If All you've got to do is be born again, and you're automatically in the army of the Lord. And if you're a soldier in his army... Uh, there is a battle to be won, and you have an adversary that is working against you. And as I have repeated often what I heard your pastor say one time, and that is the battle is invisible, but it is not imaginary. It's very real. And you have to keep that in mind in whatever you're facing. And the adversary does not care how he defeats us. His first goal is to blind us to the gospel. And when that light shines through and we receive the gospel and are saved, he goes to work then on our minds and uh, tries to defeat us and get us discouraged and to get us paralyzed in the present. So I want to preach tonight on something I think we all can get some help from. Genesis chapter 45, you know the story. Joseph is now number two in command here down in Egypt. His brethren that sold him into slavery so many years before and, uh, and lied to their dad, <clears throat> Jacob, about how he died, and they've been living with this guilty conscience all this time, and now they've come back to Egypt, and they still do not realize until this chapter that their brother is the one that's in charge and handing out the uh, provision. So the Bible says this, Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Now, you, if you know the Bible, many of you do, Joseph is probably the greatest type of the Lord Jesus Christ in our Bible. He is a, he is a picture of so many things that were true of our Lord Jesus in fact, it's uncanny how many particulars that Joseph matches and foreshadows of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have a picture of salvation. And can I tell you the typical, the general way that the Spirit of God works is before you get saved, you get troubled. Troubled about your sin, troubled about your eternity, troubled about your life, troubled about where God is and where you are, troubled about meeting Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We saw that Sunday morning with the dying thief. Does not thou fear God? That's usually how people get right before they get in. And so I hear the brethren could not answer him for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And only goes talking about, I want you to come near to me. Don't be upset with yourselves. Don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves. In other words, he's extending full forgiveness to them. It's a picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with, deals with us when we are troubled at his presence. And we come to him. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. 
And right here, Joseph is giving some wordage to his brethren that is designed to comfort them and to help them. And we're going to talk about this forgiveness and how they respond to it and show, hopefully get a picture of our own selves and some of the traps that we can fall into. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the congregational singing. I thank you for the good uh, spirit in this place tonight. I thank you for my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ that have gathered up here. And Lord, I do desire uh, to help them with how you've helped me from these passages. And I pray you would speak uh, to the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls tonight. And do that which I cannot. Without you, I can do nothing. I thank you for the privilege of getting to stand with an open Bible. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, for calling me to preach. And I pray you would use me tonight and help your people. We ask it all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, Joseph, as a picture of Jesus Christ, we see in this chapter a great picture of our salvation in Christ Jesus. And that's where salvation is at. It's in a person. I know in whom I have believed. It's a whom that we've trusted. It's not a place. It's not a process. It is a person that we have trusted. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. That's where it's located at. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for us. And when we come to Him in repentance... And faith, and it's amazing to see how many Baptists are backing up off of the doctrine of repentance in the Bible. But it's in the Bible all through every dispensation. Uh, what their problem is, is how they define it. All right, listen, uh, repentance is an attitude of humility. It's an attitude, it's a, it's a mindset that says, I have been wrong, my sin is wrong, it is filthy, it's vile, and I agree with God against myself. That's the attitude a man has when he receives the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, just as Joseph has a good word, these men are troubled and they ought to be. They did some horrific things to Joseph. Sold him into slavery and lied to their dad. Brought home his coat and said, well, it was covered in blood here. and uh, must have been a wild animal that got him. Covered up his death. And here, he, here they are standing before him. He's lived and he's been through slavery, been through jail and and lied about, slandered about, and God has exalted him to this place. And so now he has the power to execute judgment on them if he chose to. But instead, as God did through Jesus Christ toward us, he doesn't offer hellfire, damnation, and fork and lightning. He offers a free pardon and forgiveness, complete forgiveness of our sins. And oftentimes when we look at this, we see uh, salvation in this passage, for instance, he says in verse 4, Come near unto me. Do you know that coming to Jesus Christ, you were brought nigh unto God by the blood of the Lord Jesus? And we understand these things. He goes on to say this. He says, Thou shalt dwell with me in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children. In other words, you're going to live. I'm gonna be, you're going to be close to me. He says that in verse 10 and 11. And I'm going to bless your children. He goes on, it says, moreover, he kissed all of his brethren. That reminds me of the kiss of pardon, if you will, and the kiss of affection. The gospel is the kiss of God on our lost souls when we come to him. And he says in verse 5, Now th- therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. In other words, they're, they're troubled at his presence because they're remembering what they've done. And there's nothing like the past to bring you to a place of guilt. And guilt is a wonderful thing if it's dealt with biblically. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to our body. Pain says there's a problem you need to have this looked at. Guilt says there's something wrong, but here's the thing. When you deal with your guilt biblically, when you have guilt after that, that's not a good thing. And the adversary knows this and he works to build up false guilt. Most Christians are defeated tonight. Well, I'll say not most, many Christians are defeated tonight. Why? Because they have a a, a satanic guilt that the devil uses to keep them paralyzed. The devil uses our past to paralyze us today. 
And he does it continually. And people sometimes get confused and think that they're being humble or they're being uh, full of humility when they go back to their past and dig up all of these things uh, that, that they shouldn't dig up. Now, he's telling them all these promises. Did Joseph mean what he said to his brethren? Absolutely. Don't be angry. Don't be grieved with yourself. It's over with. It's forgotten. It's forgiven. Come near to me. It's just like our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. We fall, we're troubled at his presence. That's the conviction of the Holy Ghost. We recognize we've broken the law of God in word, in spirit, in attitude, in action. And and our sin is magnified in our sight and we're troubled. That's guilt. That's good if it leads us to Calvary. Once we get to Calvary, he says, hey, come near to me. And he says, be not angry with yourselves. Don't be grieved with yourselves. I forgive all. It's a wonderful thing to have that debt of sin forgiven. There's a great passage over there. I used to wonder about this passage. In in Luke 7, the woman from the city, we talked about her briefly last night. She comes to Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon the Pharisee is there and and, and he's upset because the the Lord is allowing this woman to worship him. And uh, he's sitting there thinking in his mind about how, boy, if this man was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is, is, is touching him. And for she is a sinner. And the Holy Ghost said, no, she was a sinner. And uh, the Lord says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he says, Master, say on. And he begins to talk to him. He goes, if a man's forgiven 50 pence or if he's forgiven 500 pence, who do you suppose is going to love more? And he said, well, I suppose the one that uh, 500 pence. And he said, that's right. He said, you know, uh, and he talked about that debt being freely and frankly forgiven when they had nothing to pay. And I used to read through there and think, now I know this is about salvation, but I can't figure out how this fits. And there's, a, there's usually a key word in the passage or in the verse. The key word in Luke 7, verse 42, is this word. When they had nothing to pay. When. And that's the problem. That's what keeps people from coming to Jesus Christ. They think they have something to pay with. As long as you think you have something that you might be able to, they're digging around in their pockets and digging around in the uh, the ashtray of their car, thinking they're going to help pay this debt. And he says, when they had nothing to pay, he says, he frankly forgave them both. So what's the point? The point is, salvation is a debt that is cleared completely by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, you get that debt paid when you have nothing to pay. And by the way, this is where religion gets confused now, I remember listening to a conservative talk show host there in Kentucky, and he was talking about, I don't do organized church. I don't believe in organized religion. I want to ask these people, do you believe in unorganized religion? What that means is I'm not going to church and have someone yell at me for 45 minutes. That's what that really means. But he was talking about, he goes, no, I didn't say, he goes, I didn't have faith. He says, I ask God to forgive me every day in my morning prayer time. The average Baptist would think that guy was saved. Listen to me, listen close. Don't misquote me. If you just ask God to forgive you, he will not do it. Now, everybody right there usually goes, I think he just stepped into the arena of heresy, sis. Now, listen to me. What has to happen if I have a debt, like a mortgage, and I do? Down at Farmers National Bank in Danville, and I walk into the bank president, and I say, hey, I want to tell you, I don't have the money to pay for this. I want you to forgive me, and I'll be back tomorrow and ask you to forgive me the debt again. Is that debt going away? The only thing it's going to do is it's going to gain interest. And the Bible says as days go by, they store up, they treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. It's just piling up, compound interest. But if I can take a man, let's say I had Brother Roger with me, and he's got the means to pay my house off. And I bring him with me, and I say, this man loves me and cares for me, and I can't pay the debt, and I'm sorry I can't pay it. I have nothing to pay, but this man's going to pay it. Then I could walk out of there mortgage-free. And the point is this, never forget, asking God to forgive is wonderful, but you've got to bring the payment. And the payment is a person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has got to be in the mix. I ask people down south all the time, are you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to be saved. Or, yeah, I'm trying to be a Christian. Well, I'm not all I should be. And they'll go on and they'll talk for 10 minutes. If you want to know if a man is saved or not, ask him. Well, tell me about it. How did you get saved? How could I be saved? And then just let them talk. And they will, I've had men talk for five and six and seven minutes and never mention Jesus Christ. That's because they're unsaved. They're still unsaved because Jesus Christ pays the debt. 
And when that happens, God says, come near to me. I want you to dwell with me. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. I'm going to send. I'm going to place the comforter in your heart. I'm going to live inside of you. I've got this thing fixed. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I mean, you are now accepted in the beloved. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are now a saint because of the miracle called the new birth that I did to you when you believed. And we've got all these promises. And, and, and if you look at it from Joseph's perspective, he's saying, be not angry with yourselves, nor grieved. And so, wonderful. What great promises. Joseph meant what he says. Now look at Genesis 50 with me. Turn to Genesis 50. Keep your Bible handy. handy. I want to look at several passages tonight. Now look at, look with me if you will, in Genesis chapter 50. Verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. So what are they asking for five chapters later, years later? Forgive me. And what does, how does Joseph, a picture of Jesus Christ, respond? Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Now here, here is a picture of Christians. And you know what we do? We begin our Christian life by faith and we're to walk by faith. And you're going to have to appropriate the promises of the Bible by faith in your Christian life. Because the adversary is going to come. And he is a deceiver. He started his ministry in Genesis 3 deceiving Eve. Three chapters in. Three chapters from the end of the Bible it says he deceives the nations. He is a deceiver. How does he deceive? He's a liar. And the father of it. And he will lie to you. He lies in three main areas. The area of temptation, he lies to people about sin. He says, boy, this would be wonderful if you would just forget what God said and just do it. You would be satisfied and you would enjoy yourself. He lies about sin. We understand that one. But then after you fall to the temptation, after you you go after the temptation and, and follow his deception in that, then he becomes the accuser. And the moment you follow his temptation, then he jumps on you and says, you must be the worst Christian that has ever existed. Look at you. Look what you've done. Nobody has ever done what you just did. You are are a failure in God's eyes. God is tired of you. That's an accusation. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he puts you down that way. And I'm going to tell you, that, that word Beelzebub, my understanding is that means the Lord of the flies. You know what flies are attracted to? Garbage. You know what the adversary loves to do to the Christian who's been born again, who's got a word from Joseph that says, be not angry with yourselves, be not grieved. I forgive you all. Come near unto me. Live where I'm at. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to take care of you and your kids. You know what he loves to do? He loves to take you into your past and kick over trash cans and dump the garbage out. And, and, and begin to, listen, garbage, I, I can't stand when garbage is a mess. Sometimes I get frustrated. We'll have a big fellowship meeting there at the church and the teenagers will say, hey, we need you all to take the trash out. So they take it out. But I come in the next day and it's all across the field next to the church because they're too lazy to knot it off. Not the bag off. That's not the message, but that'll help somebody, okay? If you put it in the garbage can and it's just in the bag, it's going to dump out because the bag is not knotted off. It's going to fall out. That defeats the purpose of putting it into the bag and into the can. That's not the message. That's free, but that needed to be said, I'm sure. But I can't stand a mess of garbage and the devil deals in garbage. And about the time after he gets you down in all of that garbage of your past and begins to say you're the sorriest Christian that ever lived, here's what he does next. He gives you the wrong perception. It's temptation, accusation, and perception issues. About the time you say, nah, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father. He says, don't do it. He's tired of you. 
He has this is he forgave you originally, but that that doesn't go for now. You've messed up too bad. You're a mess. Don't you don't need to go back. And we end up having the attitude of Joseph's brethren here. Forgive, I pray thee now. Don't don't just remember. Forgive our sin, our evil, our trespasses. Here's the thing: He's already forgiven them, and his heart is broken because you know ultimately what they're saying. We did not believe you. We don't trust what you told us. So we're going to reconfess and ask for forgiveness and beg for mercy. And Joseph wept. And if you go through the rest of the chapter, you'll see that Joseph repeats to them the promises that he gave in Genesis 45 to comfort them. He said, I want you near me. I'm not holding this against you. He comforted them. He spake kindly unto them. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. But his heart was broken. And many times we think that we're, we're dignifying our unbelief. Because you're going to have to deal with your past. And even in your Christian life, your, your past, not just the past before you were saved, but maybe a season in your Christian life where you failed and where you stumbled and you made a mess and you went out on God and you, you caused people to doubt and all these other things. Listen, those times you have to learn how to deal with your past biblically. And you say, well, how do, how do I deal with my past, brother? I'll tell you, I've got seasons in my Christian life that haunt me. I've got places where I've given the devil leverage to come in there and cast doubt over my title and to make me feel like I'm so far away from God that I don't even want to go to him and pray. Because I just feel like I've oh, I've just messed up. If the preacher knew about me, what God knew about me. If those missionaries knew about me. If the church family knew about me, what God knows about. I just can't, I can't do this. And you just are depressed and discouraged. And the devil comes and says, yeah, you, there's nobody that's ever done what you've done. You better just don't, don't get excited. You better, you know, if you're saved, wonderful, but you certainly can enjoy it now. We'll have to wait and see. And what we end up doing is calling God a liar. And you say, well, I don't understand. How do you get this fixed? Well, there is, there is three things I want to give you tonight of how to deal with your past, how to deal with your sin biblically and come to the place where you don't have to look at Joseph, or in this case, the Lord Jesus, and put your hands up and hope that, oh, I'm afraid you're, you haven't really dealt with this. And I'm afraid that you still are holding this against me. Please remember, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Living in a state of panic and fear. Now, according to First John, excuse me, you know the passage, and if you would turn there with me. First John chapter 1, look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth. That didn't say cleansed, that's cleanseth, that's present tense. Cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I did not realize there is such a, a, a large amount of controversy around these passages. But I'm going to tell you the first thing in order to deal with your past biblically and get past it and not go back there again is to, number one, confess your failures to God. Be honest about it. In fact... <clears throat> It's very good. We've learned in our society how to be victims and to blame somebody else for whatever we did or didn't do. And it's amazing how people can make wrong, unbiblical, sinful decisions and yet find somebody else to pin the blame on. And as long as you're passing the blame or projecting blame somewhere else, you're not going to get any help in God's courtroom. But, you know, it's called holding court as a saint. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we would judge ourselves, that's what it means to confess. Say, so, preacher, uh, what's it? Why do we have to confess? Well, confession, listen, I, I'll say this. I don't want no, I don't want to leave any kind of controversy in my path, but I believe this. I believe our sins are completely, fully paid for. If I had one sin tonight that was unpaid for, I could not go to heaven. So why do we need to confess? Some say you don't need to confess. I don't believe that. I believe that confession is so that we can continue to walk with Him. 
Walk in the light. You see, when you mess with sin, that's not light, that's darkness. And what God wants is he wants an open fellow. He wants us to be honest before him. He wants us, if you will, to unzip the gym bag and dump it out there and, and excuse nothing, deny nothing, cover nothing. I mean, hold court. I, you know what I'll do? If I know I'm guilty of something that I need to get the air cleared so I know that my fellowship is what it ought to be, I will take the Bible. Don't, don't give these general confessions. Get specific. Okay, take the Bible verse that, that declares what you did was wrong. Quote that Bible verse and say, God, I believe this. But I didn't do this, or I did do this, and, and I have sinned against you, and this is what I'm guilty of. I'm confessing this, and I'm thanking you that I am forgiven in Christ Jesus, but I want to walk with you. I w- and can two walk together except they be agreed? You must agree with God what he says about what you've done wrong. You've got to agree with him and say, there is nobody to blame but myself. I have done this and I I will be sorry for my sin. And you say, well, what if you don't feel it? Don't worry about your feelings. Just tell God what you've done. Confess it. Tell him, hold court. You know what the prodigal is such a blessing? He was a son when he left the farm and he was still a son when he came back. And when he's down in the far country, about the time he gets down, I love it when it says that he came to himself. And all of a sudden he starts thinking. And that's what we need in Christianity again, people to start thinking biblically. And imagine the devil coming next to him and saying, now don't you dare get up from this trough now. You brought yourself here. You're just going to have to live in it. And your daddy doesn't want to see you anymore. He's fed up with you. He's so angry. He'd throw you off the property. They are not going to welcome you back at all. But he said, you know what? I, I, there's hired, there's servants that, that are better off than I am. And so he tells himself, that's repentance. He says, I will go to my father. And I'll say, Father, I have sinned in thy sight and in heaven's sight. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. That's, that's a repentant heart. That's a repentant mindset. He's telling the truth. And he says, make me as one of thy hired servants. He's got it all planned out. And it says, there's his repentance. And he arose and went. When a man repents, it'll be followed up. You'll know if that repentance is real because you'll see a change. And so he heads home. And you know the story. While he was yet a great way off, father's watching for him. Now, the devil would have told him. The Bible doesn't talk about the devil right there, but I know how he operates. He's a liar and the father of it. So I could see him getting down there real quick and saying, don't you dare get up from this hog trough. This is where you deserve to be. I mean, you have messed up. Your other brother never left the farm. He's back there working hard for your daddy, and uh, he don't, they don't want to hear from you. Your dad doesn't want to hear from you. He is upset, and he does, he does not want you. He's misrepresenting the father. He would be if that's what he said and whispered in his ears. But he got up, and he headed for home. And here's the blessing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when he gets there, he says, Father, I have sinned. And that father interrupts his confession. Before he has a chance to say anything else, he says, hey, go get the, go get the robe, go get the ring. Hey, man, we're going we're gonna to have a celebration. He's come home. The only person that, uh, that elder brother uh, had no right to be upset. The only person that ought to have been upset was the fatted calf. He's the one that's going to make the sacrifice. And you say, here's what's the point. That is to be a picture of how the father watches for his children who've wandered away when they come back. And listen, you'll be in the middle of your confession. You say, I'm afraid I won't be able to confess fully or completely. Uh, We have this idea that you have to uh, confess a certain way. No, just open it up and be honest. Hold court against yourself and, and say, Lord, this is what I did wrong. I agree with what the Word of God says. And understand like the father of the prodigal that he didn't ask any more questions. He interrupted his confession and embraced him. And a, a confession is what's required to clear the air and your conscience. When I tell the Lord, this is what I've done, I don't ask. Listen, First John 1, 9 does not say this. It does not say ask for forgiveness. Now, I'm just pointing out what it says. Well, he had forgiven us all our trespasses. He wants to hear us say, what did you do? What, what was it you did? The forgiveness is here, but I want to hear from you so we can walk 
together in the light. You know what I'll do? I'll confess the thing and I'll say, thank you, Lord, that this is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I tell you these things because I want to be on the front end with you. I want to be open with you. I want nothing hidden in my heart that would hinder our fellowship. That's what I believe. There's probably more going on in that passage than I understand yet, but that's what I see. And listen, when you confess, then you need to, number two, consider what the promise actually says. God is faithful and just. And what's it say? It says, to forgive us our sins through Jesus Christ, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, why do I need to consider that? Because this is where the devil will come. And you'll be confessing the same things over again and wallowing in the past and and missing the promise. Consider what the verse says. God is faithful. That's what it says. You know what pleases him? What pleases him is our honesty. Now, here's what I've found. Many times we come to God, we confess, and we go away still feeling guilty. And we come and we confess again and again, and it's just a cycle. Now you say, what is that? I'll give you an example. I was talking to a lady one time. I got a phone call from someone that was distraught. They were, there was a situation that had just descended on their horizon. They had no control over it. And for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the phone conversation, the person was almost hyperventilating. They were so distraught. And it had to do with a child, a wayward child. And I think it's interesting. Wayward children bring heaviness to the parents. You remember the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. She said, Lord, have mercy on me for my daughter's grievously vexed. Wouldn't she say, have mercy on my daughter who has a devil? No, she says, my daughter's grievously vexed with a devil. And if you'll heal her, you'll be having mercy on me. And a wayward child has a way of breaking your heart. And this lady was, was dealing with a wayward, just, just an awful situation that had just, just been brought to her attention. And she, as I listened to her talk... The Lord said, listen to what she's saying. And the adversary was working her over. And she had gone back 40 years through her life. She said, this is, this is God uh, showing me that, that <clears throat> marrying an unbeliever, is, is, he is getting me. He is showing me his, his punishment. I know exactly what this is. And she's going back and naming off all of her sins. And she had married an unbeliever, which the Bible uh, warns against. And so when she was done going through this and she had painted God as being up there angry and ready to fire lightning bolts down and saying, I'm going to take your son and I'm going to send him off into the uh, far country and I'm going to make you pay for what you did. But you see, that's satanic. That's not a true picture of the father. And I asked this question. I said, how many sins did Jesus Christ pay for when he died at Calvary? She said he paid them for them all. I said, so the punishment has already been exacted from our substitute, completely and fully. She said, I agree with that. I said, have you ever confessed the the wrong decision you made 40 years ago? Oh, hundreds of times. And I said, well, listen to me. Every time, listen, God would not have the woman to divorce her husband. So she has made the best of a situation That's less than biblical, which is, we all find ourselves in places like that. And I said, here's here's the thing you got to understand. I said, every time you bow the knee and confess that same sin, Joseph weeps. Because what what your prayer becomes, listen, is an expression of unbelief. I've told you about this. I'm still holding myself hostage to it. Whatever bad things happen in my life... The devil's going to help me to interpret that as you getting me. Listen, he is our heavenly father. Now think of it this way. If I'm leaving, I have, a, I have some sons, so I can understand this. If I was leaving and, and I told him before I left the house that morning, hey boys, <clears throat> that tree right there, I don't want you climbing up in that tree. And I know the reason I'm telling them not to do that is because of this. 
when they climb up in that tree, there's some dry rotted branches that will not hold them. And I know they're going to have a long tumble to the ground. It's dangerous for them. God doesn't, listen, teenagers, anybody, but teenagers especially, the devil lies to you and says that God's prohibitions in the Bible is to keep you from having fun. You can't enjoy life. Uh, you'll enjoy heaven someday, but now you've got to be miserable. That's a lie from the pit. God gives instructions and prohibitions because he knows the latter end of that thing. So if I tell my son, now son, I'm going away. Don't you climb up in that tree. He's my son. I happen to come home and he's disobeyed me. He's climbed up in the tree. And about the time I'm pulling in, I'm just making this didn't happen, but just making it, using this as an illustration example. I'm pulling in and I see him up there and he sees and realizes dad knows I've disobeyed him. About that time, the branch snaps. Down he tumbles, busts out his front teeth, breaks a shoulder, uh, bruises his head. And I mean, he's just laying in a bruised, bloody mess at the foot of the tree. As a father, an earthly father, am I going to come up and start kicking dirt in his face? Am I going to run up there? And is, what, what would you think if he looked at me and he says, Oh, I know why you're doing this. It's because I disobeyed you. No, son, I'm disappointed you disobeyed me. But what you're feeling now are the consequences. This is not me punishing you. These are the consequences for not listening to me. You're still my son and I'm here to help you. I want to get you bandaged up. I want to get your teeth put back in your head. I want to get your bones uh, set. You see, a lot of times we have a wrong idea about God. And I told this person, I said, listen, you're making God out to be angry with you. I said, Christ has already taken the punishment for all of this. If you've confessed it, then consider the promise of that, uh, of that verse that told you to judge yourself. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. When we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord. But listen, when we judge ourselves, that's the way we can avoid the chastening hand of God. Amen, amen. And Joseph is up there and uh, he is hearing him reconfess things that he's already dealt with. And he weeps because he realizes they don't believe me. They don't believe me. And I want to ask you, here's, here's what I'm saying. You've got to deal with your past biblically, but you have to have faith to deal with your past. Your, your pastor said something. I don't know if it was his original quote, but I have quoted it. Dozens and dozens of times to churches and I wrote it down in the fly leaf of my Bible. The past is a classroom. It is never a living room. You learn from it, but you don't live there. Because the devil knows if he can get you in the past and if he knows he can put you there and keep you there, he paralyzes you for today. And I'm telling you, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far out of the lane you have swerved. There is a way to deal with the past and be right with God before you leave here tonight. And it will take some faith exercised in the promise of God that if you will come clean and judge yourself and confess it and say, I hate this, I want to be clean, and I hate that there's something between my heart and yours. And then when you dump it out there, thank Him by faith for removing that hindrance in your prayer life and in your fellowship. Stand up and listen, a, a just man falleth seven times, but he gets up every time. Seven times down, eight times up, as the old preacher said. And the point is this, the devil doesn't want you getting up. He wants to dig up that past and make you think you've not been forgiven. Confess it. Consider the promise and believe it. God delights in mercy. And when you get honest, God clears the air. and You can begin walking with Him and, and moving forward. So you confess the failure, the sin, the filth. And you consider the promise and you believe it. And then you continue on with the Lord. And this is what the devil doesn't want you doing. 
He doesn't want you to continue on. One of my favorite verses, I write it many times. When somebody asks me to sign a Bible, many times there's two verses I'll put down. And usually it's Philippians 3, 13 and 14, which says this. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, if I have dealt biblically, now I'm not, remember something, I'm not talking about ignoring your past if you haven't dealt with it. I'm talking about when you've dealt biblically with it and consider him who, who suffered such things in your place. When you've done that, now it's time to press on. It's time to continue. It's time to get up and keep moving forward because the devil wants you paralyzed and setting out of the game. Out of the battle. He doesn't care how he paralyzes you, but most of the time he paralyzes people with their past. Well, you can't do anything. Now that you've done this, you're you're done. God's done with you. No, he's not done with me. And I'm going to continue on. Let the past be the past at last. And the scripture says, I quoted it Sunday morning from Joel. I realize that's a second advent passage doctrinally, but it's got a great practical truth. And what is that? It says that, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And we talked about how that that thief's life, he wasted years and years of his life. He wasted his entire life, but he wised up in the last couple of hours. And God took a little conversation that was held at Calvary and broke that thing and blessed that man for the last 19 centuries, hundreds of thousands of sinners have come into the kingdom, been swept into the kingdom by seeing the simplicity of salvation in Christ Jesus by repenting and calling upon his name. Just a faithful five minutes. That's how God can take those wasted years and that wasted time and he can still use you for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the greatest, listen, regrets are an, a, a useless thing. Sure, we all have them. Regrets. Wasted opportunities, wasted time. But what good is it doing to wallow in that? You don't know how much time you got left, so let's redeem the time. How do you redeem the time? Well, you're wasting time if you're thinking about yesterday all the time. It's time to think about today. And I think one of the greatest examples is the Apostle Peter who continued on with God. I believe I've read uh, first and a second Peter. He got two books uh, in the Bible. And I believe I've read about him being one of the three main characters of Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the disciples. But I also read where he got real confident on the night of the arrest. I'll never, I'll never deny thee. Not me. Now I don't know who the other clowns are here. The only one that had a clear conscience was John. Everybody else is saying, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? John's laying there with his head against Jesus Christ's chest and he says, Lord, who is it? Which one of these scoundrels is going to betray you tonight? Because I know it's not me. But Peter said, no, I'm going to death with you. And and he, he, listen, when, when Malchus and all the soldiers show up with the lanterns and the torches and the weapons, they come into that garden and the Lord Jesus Christ who's been Praying and agonizing in prayer while Peter's sleeping. Gets up and the Bible says he went forth to meet them. Talk about courage. He goes forth and man, Peter's sitting there going, oh, it's on now. And about that time he says, uh, we seek, whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth? He said, "That's, uh, that's me. And so about that time they step forward to take a hold of Jesus Christ Peter says, that's it, it's on, I'm in it, I'll go to death. He pulls the sword and he goes to swing. And I used to always say this, that he, people don't swing swords this way. Because I said, oh, he took his ear off. No, Malchus saw him coming and went, because Peter was swinging for the fence. Whoosh, I'm fixed to take this guy's head off. But he ducks down and all he catches is the ear. Jesus, I don't know how he did it, but... Reached down there, I guess picked it up and put it back on. Amen. And didn't even take up an offering. There were no laser shows or smoke machines. He just healed him there in the garden and said, Peter, put that 
Put that sword up. Peter's frustrated because he wouldn't let him fight. Because he thought, I know how we're going to do this. We're going to do it my way. The Lord says, not now. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But it's not na- not now, by the way. It will be one day. But he's standing there, and so Peter goes out. He can't believe it. He's humiliated pretty soon. Hey, weren't you with him? Blankety blank, I don't know him. And man, it's going on, and the third time someone approaches Peter, they're hauling Jesus Christ out of Caiaphas' hall over to Herod's place, I believe it is, and they're bringing him in handcuffs, and he is letting them know. I, and the best way to separate yourself from God's people is to let your tongue sound. That's a great way to let people know you don't follow Jesus Christ is by cursing like a sailor. And that's what Peter was doing at that moment in his life. And the Bible simply says that Jesus looked over his shoulder and he looked up at Jesus Christ there in Luke chapter 22. And he never says a word. Doesn't have to. And Peter, those curse words are still hanging in the air. And he's just going through there and he looks over like about that time the cock is crowing. Somebody said that's why Baptists love to eat chicken because it was a rooster that ratted out the first Baptist preacher there. And that third, that third time that cock crew and he re- recognized he knew it and I did it just like he said and he went out and he wept bitterly. And you come to John 21 after the resurrection and he comes up there on the shore and they're eating. And by the way, this is something that helped me about the judgment seat of Christ. I believe that when we stand before the Lord, you know what we're all afraid of? We're afraid of the brethren seeing what failures we really were. That's really what we're concerned about. We should be concerned about what the Lord thinks. But we're, we're concerned about our, you know, we want, we've read enough chick tracks to think there's a big screen up there, IMAX theater, that's going to play back our life. But you know something in the New Testament? Joseph was a just man. And when he found out that he thought Mary had defrauded him, being a just man, he wanted to put her away privily. That's his bride-to-be. We are, she's espoused to Joseph. We are, as a chaste version, espoused to Jesus Christ. And he thought that Mary had been unfaithful to him and he was willing to privately deal with that because he loved her. When you get to this place, you see the same thing. Listen, he took Peter away from those other six disciples privately down the beach. You say, how do you know it was privately? Because John said he followed afar off. After they were done eating, the Lord said, come with me, Peter. And they're walking down there and he said, now, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And by the way, knowing the Greek word for love there does not fix anything. That's that's a big one right there. You'll hear that on the Christian radio all the time. Well, agape and phileo, this means, it's the first time he uses the word agape, which means it's just a general love. Then phileo is a deep, intimate love. No, that's not true. Because the English says he was grieved because he asked him the third time. In other words, he asked the same question three times. I know for some of you that love the Greek that I just ruined you. Sorry. Just stick with your English. It's got more than we can handle in this century, okay? And he says, do you love me three times? Why did he ask him three times? Because he denied him three times. And he didn't even say, grovel and get down and and, and tell me. He just says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. You know I do. I'll feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Ah, yes, Lord, you know. Well, then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Three times he got him to say, I love you. And then you know what? In Acts chapter 2, who's up on the stump when the Holy Spirit shows up? And Peter jumps up there and says, men and brethren, you men of Judea, Men of Israel. And he goes through and preaches a powerhouse sermon and God saves around 3,000 people. Chapter 3, he gets another opportunity. What's he do? He had to be a Baptist. He's right with God. He jumps up and he said, Ye deniers! You denied the Holy One of Israel. And this was just within a couple of months of what he had done. I've often wondered, man, he must have had some serious Holy Ghost confidence because there could have been somebody in the back of the car going, yeah, well, I was in the courtyard that night. You denied him too. (laughs) He didn't care. I'm right with God. I'm preaching, and he says, you denied the Holy One. 
You say, what is that? That's the Lord using a man who got up after he confessed, believed that he was restored. And then continued on and pressed on. And I'm here to tell you tonight, I don't know what you might have fallen into. I don't know if you have a besetting sin. I don't know, but I know this. That God delights in mercy and He's told you how to get this thing fixed. And He wants to fix you up so you can continue on. Not so He can hold it over your head for the rest of your life. The devil is the one that makes you think that God is still angry. God is not angry. He might be grieved, but if you deal with it, the grief is gone. And the grief really is a design to get you turned back to Him. Somebody asked me one time, they said, Well, preacher, how do I know if it's the devil accusing me or if it's the Holy Ghost convicting me? And I said, I would say this. If you were in a room by yourself and you were guilty of something and the devil came, he says, You know what you've done, don't you? Yeah. I've done that. He would get right down there and say, yep, you've done that and it's terrible what you've done. You agree with the devil? Yeah, I, I can't believe I've let God down. I can't believe you have either. And I can't even believe you better hope eternal security is real because if I were God, I wouldn't even keep you around. I mean, he'll make you feel low and he'll walk out and close the door and bar the door and set the building on fire. But if it's the Holy Ghost, he'll come and say, why are you downtrodden? Well, I've grieved you. And I've disappointed my heavenly father. Yeah, you have. And he'll sit down next to you and put his arm around you and you say, you look back over there, you see that exit door? Let's get up. Let's walk out of here. That's the difference. The devil will lock you in and set the building on fire. The Holy Ghost will say, well, what did you do now? Will you be honest about what you've done? Well, you're right. You didn't do right. But we're going to fix this by my power, by the grace of God. We can do better. Let's get up and walk out of here. There's the door. There's the exit. He doesn't burn the building down around you. And you walk out and you press on and you press on. You remember, is it a Mesa there? Uh, if I'm pronouncing his name right in 2 Samuel chapter 9, that body's in the, wallowing in, the, in his blood. And finally they come along and they picked him up and they took him out of the road and covered him up because people were stopping and gawking. And he says, Clear this out of the road so we can get on down the road. I'm here to tell you tonight that you've got to deal with your past biblically and in faith. And don't do what Joseph's brethren did after you've dealt with it, after you've heard him say you're forgiven. Be not angry with yourself. Be not grieved. Let's get up and let's go on. I want, to, I want you near me. I want to comfort you. I want to nourish you. Let's be brethren again. When that happens, you don't need to come back and say, Oh, remember, remember. You know, forgive us, forgive us. Joseph wept because they didn't believe what he told them. And I think God is grieved many times with Christians who allow the devil to bring up their past and make them feel as though you're useless now. It's not true. If you're here tonight, you've got breath in your lungs. You can be clean and you can be right with God. And you just got to believe what this book says and press on. Press on, continue on. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Brother Roger.